Pat, Pastor said, Pastor Mike, which I, by the way, I just want to put a plug in. Pastor Mike and Lisa are three near people. Very proud of Pastor Mike and Lisa and so grateful that they are here uh, leading this great congregation. By the way, Pastor Mike, that's right. All these people are going to move back and become part of the church again. I expect to see everybody. He said to me, you think you can preach about 30 minutes? And I said, sure. I only do this once every 10 years or 15 years. Sure, I'll keep it 30. It is such a joy to see all of your faces and hug your necks. So many of you, are, I don't know why you people are getting older, I'm not. But it's really good to see you. Bobby Joe and I are so thrilled to be here. Listen, one of the really unique times or special things for this day, six of the eight people that started this church. You know, we moved up here from Washington, D.C. in 1978 with three couples. There were no kids. My daughter, Crystal, was the only kid in the church, two years old. She turned two years old the day we moved here. And it was eight of us, eight adults, that started the church from scratch. By the way, the church wasn't even supposed to be in Virginia. It was supposed to be in Shelburne. Most of you don't know that, but it was by some accusations, and, uh, and I, was, I was turned in to the district superintendent and griped about because we were too close to other AG churches. And that's what prompted us to move the church down to Virginia's. So it wasn't even supposed to be here, but we followed. We, I said, hey, I don't care where you are. I just want to plant a church. But Dave and Yana, why don't you guys stand? Art and Celeste. These are in Debbie Joe. Why you stand too? These are the ones that have faith to trust God that we could plant a church from nothing. And I mean, we started with nothing. We had no land, we had no buildings, we didn't even have a hymn though. I had to ask the district office to send us some hymn books so we could sing. Uh, we had nothing, and, and the only other couple that's not here is Steve and Helen, and Steve has gone on to glory, passed away a couple years ago. Helen's out in California, and she couldn't make it out, she really wanted to be here. But those are the folks that had the faith to trust God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump off of that, because when we started the church 40 years ago, it was out of a verse in Zechariah. Chapter 4, who has despised the day of small beginnings? And so that's why I had the pastor read that text. And I'm, going to preach, I'm going to preach about when small is a big thing. Because it is. The world, you know, our world is obsessed right now with bigness. Everything's big. The news is big. Events are big. And we're even living in a culture where there's big mega churches in various places in the country. And they get almost all the attention, you know. You notice on satellite radio, you don't hear Dennis Markworth's sermons. You hear Joel Olstein's sermons. But, you know, and I, by the way, I was there last Sunday. I was in his church last Sunday and uh, sitting in the church. There only, on a Saturday night, there was 10,000 people only there on Saturday night. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, I am so grateful to God because the vast majority of churches in America are under 150. The vast majority. And small is a big thing. While many people celebrate mega churches, I am so grateful that God raises up local churches. And it doesn't matter the size of the church, it's the size of the vision that counts. It's the size of the hearts of the people. 
And uh, so I'm going to show you some things in Scripture which I hope will help you understand how important smallness is. How many remember in the New Testament the feeding of the 5,000 story? Well, if you read that text, first off, it wasn't 5,000. It was 15,000, 20,000. It says 5,000 men besides women and children, which they didn't count in those days. They didn't count women and kids. So that's why it says the feeding of 5,000. It was really feeding of 20,000 or 15. They didn't count the kids because, or the women because they didn't think they counted. When God did that miracle, you know what he did it with? He did it with a kid that didn't count that brought a lunch that day with five loaves of bread and two fishes. Or is it the other way around? Two fish and five loaves. I think that's the way it goes. But this great miracle is told about the disciples and about Jesus and everything that happened. The kid's name is never given. We don't even know who this kid is. He was some small kid, uncounted, and I want you to know when God does great things, he often uses the uncounted people, the unknown people, the insignificant people. There was a Jewish slave girl that once was brought under the, the home of a, a commander named Naaman who wasn't even Jewish. And Naaman, this commander, this mighty military guy, came down with leprosy. And when he became leprous, his Jewish slave girl said to him, if you go see the prophet... He might pray for you, and you might get healed. And if you remember the story, he went, and uh, the prophet said to him, you need to go wash seven times in the muddy Jordan, which he took as an insult and said, I'm a military captain. I'm not. And the Jewish slave girl, who is unnamed in the scriptures, is the one that said, what have you got to lose? Um, you've got leprosy, and what would it hurt you if you did what? If he had asked you to do something great, you would have done it. He's asked you to go wash seven times, and of course the story turns out to be a good one because he finally goes and humbles himself and washes. And when he came up the seventh time, what does the scripture says? His skin was clean. That was a Jewish slave girl who we don't know who she was that was at the basis of that miracle. Just some unknown girl. It was the women who first found Jesus resurrected from the tomb, and they were the first ones authorized to go and preach the gospel, the good news that Jesus was risen. It was Jesus that sent them. It wasn't a guy that was called in the ministry first. It was these girls, these women. And of course, when they got back and told the disciples, hey, he's, he's, a, he's risen, they, said, they thought the ladies were crazy. That's what the Bible says. They thought they had gone out of their minds. Uh, so they, it was women that, and, and again, they were insignificant in Jesus' day. It was an insignificant little shepherd boy that we read about when Saul, King Saul, was being taken off the throne and God was going to raise up a new king of Israel. And he told, he told the prophet, he said, Samuel, I want you to gather, the, it's one of the sons of uh, Jesse, thank you. Uh, call his sons, and of course Jesse called six of his seven sons because the little one was just a runt. He was a little shepherd boy out in the hills and certainly couldn't be him. And even Samuel, when they came, when he started coming by, Samuel the prophet, when the first one came by, he was a military guy. All the other sons were in the military in Israel. And when the first eldest came by and he was a strapping, young, military man, man, uh, the prophet Samuel said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here. Mm-hmm. That's what the scripture says. In other words, he said, This guy looks like a king. He's military, he's powerful, he's like Saul. And God said, No, nah, it's not him. And he brought another son who was a military guy. And again, it wasn't. And finally, God had to say to Samuel, 
Man looks on the outward appearance. You're looking at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's where that verse comes from. And, he, and finally, after all six sons went by, you know, the prophet said, is this it? I mean, I, the Lord told me it's one of your kids, and that's all of them. And he said, no, I still have one. He's out in the fields, little shepherd boy named David. And Samuel said, we will not leave this place until he comes. And they went and dragged this little boy who was just a young teenager, just an insignificant shepherd boy, in front of Samuel, and Samuel anoints him king of Israel, the future king. And what does he do? He goes back to tending sheep. He doesn't even get the rule. It was an unknown little shepherd boy that became one of the greatest names in the Old Testament. It was a guy named Gideon, who the scripture says that he was the least of his clan. His clan was the least in all of Israel. They were fighting the enemy. They weren't winning. The Jewish people weren't winning. They were always subjugated to these Philistines and all these other powers. And the angel appears to this Gideon, who's a nobody, literally a nobody, and says, mighty man of valor. Amen. And he's going, there's somebody else around here? <laughs> and it didn't make any sense at all to call him a mighty man. But you know the beautiful story of that. He becomes a great warrior, leads God's people to victory. Gideon did it with 300 people, 300. He first got a turnout of 30,000. And he thought, well, we might be able to go against 100,000 with 30. Uh, and then God says, no, nah, I want you to pare this down a little bit. Get rid of uh, all the ones who don't want to be here. And the scripture says the ones that didn't want to be there was uh, 29,000 or 30, 30 some thousand, almost 30,000 people left. And then there was, there was still several thousand. And, and God says, that's still too many. Now I want you to take them down by the water and watch how they drink. And the ones that, that drink uh, by sticking their mouths in the water, eliminate them. And the reason he did that is because when you've got your enemy on all your sides, the last thing you need to be doing is sticking your head in the water because they could sneak up on you. And so God said to Gideon, I want you to watch the ones that take their, their hands and cup the water and then drink it this way because those are the guys that are staying alert and looking around. Well, it turned out to be 300. And I don't know about you, but if I had been pastor at that time, I would have said, you know, God, we're going to go against about 100,000 enemies. It was bad enough when it was three to one, thirty thousand. Now you pared me down to three hundred. I think we need another plan. <laughs> um, but yet it was a great victory, and God used a nobody, and he became one of the great judges in the Book of Judges, Gideon. Um, it's always these unknown people. It was um, an unknown virgin girl in uh, the turn of the uh, the turn of the New Testament from the Old Testament that God called whose name was Mary and said, you're going to be the mother of, of, the, of the Savior. She was unknown. She was just a virgin girl, a young teenage girl, and she thought, me? And Joseph probably thought the same thing when God finally had to tell him, no, take her as his wife, this is of me. They were unknown. They were, they were worried about all the rumors that would be said about them, and yet she became the mother of Jesus, and Joseph became the father of Jesus. So again, it was just some unknown person. Uh, there was back in the Old Testament, when God saw the way humanity was going after Genesis and, and the way man's heart was corrupt all the time, he thought, you know what, I need to create a whole nation that will be my priests to the whole world. So I'm going to call this guy Abram. Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, Chaldees. Ur was this interesting city because Ur, as a city, worshipped the moon goddess at that time. So... 
Abram was probably a moon goddess worshiper. When God called him and said, I've called you, Abraham, I want you to leave Ur of Chaldees with your family, and I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to give you, and you're going to be my people, and it's going to be your descendants that will become a great nation that will serve me as priests to the whole world. And out of you, I will bless the world. A guy who was unknown, some crazy city. It wasn't even a godly city. It was a city that worshipped the moon goddess. And Abram gets called, and you know that beautiful story. He gets called, he, he leaves. Uh, they, they stopped for a while with his father until he passed away, and then they continued the journey on toward the promised land. He didn't even know where he was going. He was just going wherever God told him to go, kind of like us when we ended up in Virginia's. We had never, by the way, Bevy Joe and I never had visited this place to the day we moved here. For, for one thing, we didn't think we were going to be in Virginia's. We thought we'd be in Shelburne. So we never even looked at this. Remember the art? We uh, remember we rented a plane up in Burlington. We rented a plane, so we came up one weekend. It's the only time it ever was in Northern New England in my entire life. I thought if I'm going to move up there, I want to at least see what it looks like. So we rented a plane out of Burlington, Vermont, for I think one hour. Was it a one-hour flight? And the the pilot flew us over Shelburne and over Burlington, and we kept circling for a while. And at one point, I I said, "There's another town off in the distance out there." He said, oh, that's Virginia's. I said, oh, you don't need to fly down there. We're not going there. <laughs> and we, we never did fly over Virginia's, did we? We flew over Shelburne several times and landed, and I thought, well, this is great. This is where we're going to be served. God has, and this is the smallest city in the USA. Who has despised the day of small beginnings? You know, my own mom, who was a pastor's kid, my grandfather was an Assembly of God minister, my own mom called me at one point and said, Denny, they called me Denny in my family. They said, she said, Denny, you need to move to Michigan. This is crazy you move into this little city in Virginia. That it wasn't even where you planned to go. You've only got six people with you, three couples that you're friends with. This isn't going to work. Why don't you move here until a good church opens up? And I finally had to tell her, I said, Mom, Weren't you a preacher's kid? <laughs> Wasn't Grandpa an Assembly God minister? I said, weren't you the one? My mom was one of eight kids, and my grandfather planted a bunch of Assembly of God churches during the Depression era with eight kids, and there's a bunch of Assembly of God churches in North Dakota and South Dakota that my grandparents planted, and my mom played the pump organ for, for the worship service. And I said, Mom, aren't you the one that remembers stories of how God provided when you guys were in the depression era out there? And I said, you're discouraging me. She says, well, I just don't want, I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to see this thing fail and you don't have a prayer of a chance to make this work. She, she said that. Well, she's in glory now. so. And I remember saying to her, I said, Mom, don't call me again unless you have something positive. <laughs> and she cried, and she said, Well, I'm just that I care about you, and I want you to see you get hurt. Best thing I ever did in my life was moving here. Amen. With people. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you were saved when I was here? Okay, there's a bunch of you. How many of you were here in the early years when you were back in school? All right, so there's several. For five years, you know, we were in the elementary school, and I think we got to about 50 people there. And then we uh, talked about small things, despising the day of small beginnings. 
we finally said, you know, we really need to buy land and we need to build a church building. We had people that came to the school that said they enjoyed our church, enjoyed my preaching, but they couldn't worship in an elementary school. That's when we knew we needed to buy land. And when we first came over, I thought, boy, this would be a great spot. Actually, the senior pastor who served in there in Washington, D.C., put his finger on a, on a map. He never was up here. And he said, I don't know what's up there, but if you ever get this property, this would be a great place for a church, based on the map that he was looking at. And it was this spot. I did some history and found out the Church of England once owned this land. And uh, they decided it wasn't worth ever building a church here. So we went and looked. Art, I think it was you went and talked to the realtor uh, down in Middlebury at the time, and the guy wanted $150,000 for this property. Now, we were only about 25 people or so back then, and half of those were kids. They don't give very good in the offering. <laughs> and uh, I, we came back, and I was, I'll be honest, I was pretty discouraged because I thought, $150,000, we're never going to come up with money like that. And uh, so I gave up on it, to be truthful. And Art, about two months later, kind of nudged me one day. He said, Pastor, you're not talking about that land anymore. I said, Art, you want $150,000? we are never going to come up with that. He said, uh, you don't know. You'll never know what God might do. Amen. <laughs> That's art. Yeah. And so he needled me, and I was going down to a minister's meeting in Middlebury, and I had to drive by the realtor, so I thought, okay, I'll stop one last time and talk to the guy. And I believe he was drunk when I got in there. <laughs> <laughs> Serious. And he was slurred speech, and I told him who I was and why I was there. And he said, I got $150,000. And I said, the guy that owns it is a land baron, and he will not sell to a church. I said, well, just call him. I said, I got my elder, Art, who is just driving me crazy, <laughs> needling me that, that we should try again. He said, all right, I'll call the guy and ask him again. But I called months ago, and he told you no. And so a couple days, I guess, went by, and also they get this phone call, and this guy's name was Anthony Sasasimo. He owns land all over northern New England. He dislikes Christians. And uh, so I said to him on the phone, I said, I said, is there any chance you would just sell us, he wanted the 150000 for all 40 acres here. I said, would you just sell us 10 acres and, and cut the price down? And he, he was quiet on the phone. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, what kind of church is this? And I, and then I panicked. <laughs> I said, we're Pentecostal, we're Assembly of God. And uh, he paused and he said, tell you what. He said, I'll give you the 10 acres of your choice for uh, $15,000. Wow. And I almost fell on the ground, literally. Wow. I came back to the church. We, we had a special business meeting in our home gathered all the congregation together. You could fit them all in our living room back in those days. And I said, we have a chance here, guys, to buy whatever 10 acres we want for $15,000. Hallelujah. And Art says, I vote we don't do it. <laughs> I said, I, I, was, I was honestly flabbergasted. I looked at Art like, he turned into Judas all of a sudden. I said, what do you say? Art tells Pastor, I don't think we can afford 15. We might be able to afford 12, but I don't think we can afford 15, so I vote we say no to the offer and we counter-offer with 12. And I got mad. <laughs> because he didn't only say it himself, he persuaded everybody else in the room to agree to that. 
and I threatened to quit. If I remember, I said, I said, this is this is not going to work. I said, now you're going to embarrass me. I'm going to call this guy back. He already has a hard time with churches. I don't know why he decided yes when I told him we were Assembly of God. I'll tell you the rest of that story in a second. Uh, I said, and now you're going to embarrass me by me calling him back. He was willing to give it to us for fifteen thousand, and you want to counter offer at twelve? This is horrible, Art. I said, you got the whole church to vote that way. So I called up real sheepishly, and I said, look, I, I want to apologize to start with. I said, my congregation is very short-sighted. I said, it was a very generous offer. I appreciate you're willing to give it to us for 15, but I said, unfortunately, we're a congregational-led structure, and they voted with a counteroffer of 12. And I know that's terrible, and I apologize for telling you that, but I don't have any choice. I have to tell you that that's all we're willing to pay. And he goes, all right. He said, I'll tell you what. If you can go back to them and convince them to at least come up to 13, I'll give it to you for 13,000. I came back. I gathered everybody, and I'm thinking, Art, if you pull this one more time. <laughs> and I shared the news with everybody. said, we can get it for 13000 I said, see, I told you we should have counted off. Now we got $2,000 more off the price. I vote we get it. <laughs> and at first, we, I wanted the corner. I thought it would be great to have the church right in the corner of 22A and 7, but the more we looked into the state regulations and laws, we found out there would be no access off of Route 7 on the corner, that the only place there would be Route 7 access was on this 10 acres on this end. And if we got that, we would also control anybody going into the rest of the acres would have to go through our property, which means we could charge them something. We had a couple offers a couple times for that too, by the way. And so God provided this land, and I started to see the hand of God taking a group, a small group of people. You know, that's the way God always works. It's not the mega churches that have changed the culture in America. It's the small churches scattered by the thousands across our landscape. The mega churches get a lot of attention, they get the news, and they sometimes get to talk to the politicians. But the, the essence of who we are in America is driven largely by small congregations, people living by faith, whose names will never be in the public venue, whose pastors will never be publicly well-known, who faithfully serve God and do great exploits for Him. Amen. And that's what Zerubbabel, and this, this whole story in, in Zechariah is so fascinating, and that's probably why the Lord used that when we started the church. Because I, you know, I was on staff at a, a large church in Washington, D.C. That's where Art and Celeste and Dave and Yana, they were on my executive committee. I had a youth group of 250 kids. In Washington, D.C., the church was about four miles from the White House on Route 50, which is Constitution Avenue. And, uh, and we, it was a large church, ran a thousand on Sunday mornings. And when we moved up here, I thought, what am I doing? Leaving a big church where there was lots of security, that was one of my wife's concern when we first talked about it. Bevy Joe said, I don't think we can do this. And I said, because uh, they came, at start, by the way, you might, you might need to know this, this church started off as a joke. No. They came to me in Washington, D.C., I think it was Art and Dave, and said, hey, we're, we're being transferred to IBM up in Burlington, Vermont. Why don't we all go up and start a church? And I laughed, and I said, sure, get a bunch of you together, and I'll do it. And I was only joking. <laughs> and a couple months, about a month later or so, they said, okay, we've got a commitment by several, you know, a few families are willing to go, so we're taking you up on it. 
I said, I was only joking, you guys. I wasn't serious about it. I said, but I'll, I'll share it with Bevy Joe and see what she says. I shared it with Bevy Joe, and she said, there is no way. We're moving up to northern New England, which we never even thought of. And she said, I'd be scared to death. How would we survive? Because we had a two-year-old kid, so she's thinking practically. You know, How would we survive? How would we even have an income? I said, I don't know. You'd have to trust God. Scary thought. <laughs> I said, I think, I think they promised to try to get me $100 a week. Mm-hmm. Big salary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and, and so when she, she said no, I came back to Art and Dave and the rest of them, and I said, I said, Baby Joe's not real excited about it. They said, well, we'll talk to her. I said, no, you won't. <laughs> I said, you're not going to ever bring it up to Bevy Joe, and I am not going to bring it up to Bevy Joe again. I said, if this is of God, God knows how to get through to my wife. And I will wait for the Lord to speak to her. And if God speaks to her and says, go, we'll do it. Well, I think about two months went by, and Artis Les and Dave and Yana and Steve and Helen, I think they were all getting a little nervous that it wasn't ever going to happen. And I just said, maybe Joe hasn't said a word about it. And I came home from the office one day about two months after we had started this conversation. I walked in the door, and Debbie Joe says, Dennis, I had devotions this morning, and I had this. She said, remember a couple months ago we talked about going up to Shelburne and planting a church with Dave and Jan and Art and Celeste and whoever else wanted to go? And I said, yeah. She said, when I was doing my devotions this morning, the Holy Spirit spoke to me as clear as a bell that that was of God. I said, are you sure? <laughs> and she said, yep. She said, I know I, I said no originally. She said, but I know this is of the Lord. I said, all right, that's all I need. I walked across the street and went back to my office. We were the only one of seven pastors that lived near the, built, the church building. I walked across the street, went to my office, and typed up my resignation letter and handed it to the senior pastor. Because I'm afraid she changed her mind. <laughs> and that was our journey. And when I came down Route 7, that hill, you know, that comes down from Middlebury, that's the first time I saw this city. And by that point, we knew we were going to land here and not in Shelburne. And I remember in the U-Haul, Bevy Joe sitting next to me, and I came down there. It's the first time I ever saw Virginia's. Never saw it before that. We didn't, I didn't see it, the city until we actually moved here. And I came down that hill, and I saw that little city from the top of that hill, I looked at Bevy Joe and said, my God, what have I done to my family? <laughs> exact words out of my mouth. And it's been a journey, and it was a great journey of faith ever since. I can't tell you the number of times. I wish some of you knew the stories of what brought this church into existence. When we first moved out of the school, and we came over here, we... Uh, we decided to give the school a gift um, because they never charged us. The whole five years we were in elementary school, they never charged us a penny. But we always gave them something every month to offset the cost of the electric bill and everything else. We did it as a goodwill gesture. And when we were leaving, we had one Sunday school room that we used that was one of the teachers there. She was a language teacher. She, back in those days, they were teaching, starting to teach the languages at a younger age level. And the teacher's classroom we were using had gotten a bad had gotten bad news that, that because of tax, tax cuts, the program at the elementary school was going to be cut for teaching kids language uh, skills. And that was her classroom, and she was really broken up about it. 
So I went to our board and I said, look, we've been here five years. We just finished the first two wings of this building here. And we were getting ready to move over here. And I said, you know what? We should do something as a thank you for the school. And I said, they just rolled back this program for the kids because there's no money to fund it. I said, what if we gave the money to fund that program so that a teacher can keep her a job? As, a, as kind of an expression of thank you for letting us have five years. And the board all said yes. I had one person leave the church. They got mad at me that I used God's tithe money to go to the public school. Uh, but we felt it was an appropriate gift to do. So we gave it to her. And a few minutes, I called the, the superintendent of schools here in Virginia. And I said, hey, uh, we want to say thank you for letting us be here for five years. So we're going to fund that program that just got cut. And he said, are you sure you want to do that, Reverend? And I said, yeah, we're really sure we want to do it. Ten minutes later, I got this call from this weeping teacher at the elementary school who said, Pastor Dennis, I just got a call from the superintendent of school. He said, my program will stay intact, that, that you guys are going to fund it this year so that I can keep the program going. Is that true? And I said, yeah. She said, why would you want to do that? You're a church. I said, well, you let us use your classroom all this, these years for a Sunday school room, and you, the, the school's been so good to us. We just want to say thank you. And that paid huge dividends for this church's reputation with Virginia's public school system. Mm-hmm. Because many years later, remember Robin, uh, Robin and, and Chad Baslin? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not here today. They wanted to be here so bad. Uh, Robin was on an LSD trip. She was Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones. She was the dance coach to Mick Jagger. Wow. And was in Hollywood and was on an LSD trip when God literally stopped her in her tracks walking on the road high on LSD and said, you're going to serve me? And revealed who he was to her. They got saved. They ended up here. They started coming to our church. And she said, I want to do some drama stuff. She said, I was in Hollywood. I can, I, we can write plays. We can do all kinds of stuff. And it was during those years that we said, all right, well, let's try it. And so she did this big, some, how many were part of those big productions? You know that the cable company up here is still showing the videos or the, the, those on the cable system at Christmas time? So she came, Robin came to me and said, Pastor, the church isn't big enough for what I'm envisioning this to do. She said, I'm hoping over a thousand people are going to come to this. I said, Robin, this is for gins. I said, there's only 2,500. Back then it was 2,500. I guess the city is gone. So I said, I said, how do you think we're going to get a thousand people at something like this? She says, I'm convinced we will. And she said, so I need a bigger place. I said, well, the only place I know big enough for that would be the high school auditorium. So she goes over to the high school, walks into the principal's office, and says, look, we want to do a, a play, a Christian play, and we need to use the, the facilities here. And the principal said, there is no way we're letting a church use the school for some public display, you know, separation of church and state, and gave her a real hard time initially. And she said, are you sure? He said, what church are you from? She said, I'm from the Assembly Guy Christian Center. He goes, oh, why didn't you say that? He said, said, if you had told me that in the first place, I would have said yes right off. He said, you're free to use it, and I hope this doesn't get anybody in trouble. He said, I'll even have the janitorial... Uh, people that's the janitors for the public school come and clean up for the three nights that you run the the play at no charge to you and we won't charge you anything he said but don't tell anybody that because I'll get in trouble (laughs) using public funds to let you do this 
The first play we did, we had 1,200 people show up at. Mm -hmm. The second year, I think, was around 1,150, and it was around 1,050 or 11 the third year we did it. Wow. And, uh, and I thought, you know what? You can dream big even in a small town. Yeah. Yeah. And God brought people like that all the time into this congregation that did great things for the Lord. And there's Robin and Chad, we, we talked to them not too long ago. They're still serving the Lord. They live down in um, um, Delaware. Delaware. I wanted to say Connecticut, but it's Delaware. And I just, you know, I look across this audience, and I would just wish you knew some of the stories of things. When we went, when we had to add the fellowship hall on, on this side here, which was only a year and a half after we did the first building program, uh, we needed more parking because that we only had that front parking lot, that small parking lot in the front, and there we were running out of room, and people were getting mad. I literally got calls that people said we tried to come to your church Sunday, couldn't find any place to park, mm -hmm. and as you can see, we're not near anything in town, so they didn't come to the service because of that. So I went to the board and I said, you know what, we really need a second parking lot on that side of the church, or we're gonna we're not gonna grow, be able to grow, and at that time, that side of the church was a, about three to five inches of water and it was a frog pond because it was much lower than it is now and it was just wet all the time and frogs were out there croaking all the time and so I said Tim Tim Miskit you know worked for the US Department of Agriculture I said Tim find out what it's going to cost us to get enough fill to build that up and put another parking lot next to the church on that side and um, and then the state came and said we had to put all these pine trees in, these yeah. rows of pine trees over here. So the bill started getting higher and higher and higher. <laughs> and I don't know where we ended up. I think it was going to be six grand or something like that to do the project. And you know how much we had in the, in the church's coffers at the time? <laughs> we had nothing because we had just finished the first building program. And we literally had no savings account. We were eking out week by week the church was and um, the board said well how are we going to pay for it and I said I don't know <laughs> I said how have we done anything at this place we've always trusted God and he's always come through and so the week after we, we started looking into doing it and had no way to know how we were going to pay for it I got a phone call Monday night after our Sunday quick board meeting that we had and this guy I knew it was a long distance call and this guy says Pastor Dennis is this you I said, yeah. He said, you don't know me. We've never met. He said, I was the town drunk in Virgins. He said, I grew up in Virgins, and I was a, I was a drunk. He said, my wife left me. My kids have, uh, left my life. And he said, uh, after my wife and my kids left me, I lost my job. And he said, I was just a drunk in Virgins. He said, I wandered out to California. And he said, I was actually considering suicide. And he said, I was standing on the side of the road feeling sorry for myself, a long ways from, from uh, Vermont. And he said, I just kind of in my heart just cried out one last time and said, God, if you're really there, will you show me yourself? He said, I turned around, there was a little assembly of God church across the street. And I didn't know if anybody was there, but I walked over there. The door was open, the pastor was there, I walked in, and the pastor led me to Christ. And I found Jesus as my Savior, and God completely cleaned me up from being an alcoholic. He said, I stayed in the church for years, fell in love with a beautiful Christian lady there. We got married. He said, it's been several years now, and God has really turned my life around in a big way. 
He said, I own a steel corporation here in, in California, and I'm a multimillionaire. He said, last Thanksgiving, I told my new wife, I said, would you like to go see where I grew up? And he said, I had no idea of who you were. I had no idea. He said, there was no somebody got church in Virginia's when I lived there, and I was a drunk. He said, I, I asked her if she wanted to go home with me so I could show her where I grew up. And he said, we came home, and when I came down Route 7 and saw this Assembly of God church right off the road, right outside of town. He said, I stopped in your parking lot and wept and said, God, how good you are. You've provided a church in the town where I never knew the church existed, the same church I got saved in when you were supernaturally revealed yourself to be in California. And he said, we came to your service two Sundays in a row. He said, you'll see our names in the guest book. He said, I never talked to you. He said, I was too emotional to come up to you and tell you who I was and why we were there. So he said, I never said a word. He said, you know, it's been a couple months now. And he said, I just, he said, I'm still kind of a new Christian. I'm kind of new at this thing. He said, the reason I'm calling tonight is, I, as I told you, God's been very good to me. I'm a multimillionaire. And he said, last week when I was in prayer, God spoke to my heart. Said, call that pastor of that church that you didn't speak to and offer him $6,000 for some project they need to do. Mm-hmm. And he said, does that make any sense to you? I was so shocked that I hung up the phone. <laughs> and Betty Jo looked at me and said, you hung up on I said, I know, I just am shocked. I was in shock. And she said, well, that wasn't very nice. I said, no, it wasn't. Back in those days, you could do star 69 and it would return the call. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. We didn't have cell phones yet. Uh, so I did the star 69, and fortunately, I got him back on the phone. And I apologized for hanging up on him first thing. And then I said, I said, my brother, I said, as a matter of fact, we had a meeting yesterday. We need a new parking lot on the other side of the church. And we need to put all these shrubs and bushes and trees in. And I said, the project was going to cost us 6000 and we didn't know where we were going to get it. And he started weeping on the phone. And after he quit weeping after a while, he said, this means God supernaturally revealed this to me, didn't it? I said, yeah. I said, that's okay. I hope that wasn't the Holy Spirit flying away. And I'll never forget, he said, he said, Pastor, I'll send you 3000 this week, and I'll send you the other 3000 next week. And he did. And the project happened, and the parking lot's there, and the trees are there. And uh, for many, many years thereafter, they came out and visited a couple times. We had them over a house for supper one night when they came on Thanksgiving. They usually came back on Thanksgiving. They're still dear friends, and last names are Levitts. They're still friends of ours. We hear from them at Christmas time usually. They sent this church tens and tens of thousands of dollars over the years. Wow. wow. Just as an investment. He said, I was an alcoholic here. He said, I want to invest in what God's doing here because he changed my life. I could tell you stories like that for hours, <laughs> literally. When we built this youth wing back here, which was just before I got elected superintendent, this uh, whole youth uh, addition in the back here, that was in 1990. My wife's giving me the cut signal. <laughs> she used to do that when I preached here all the time. Just to, go, just to sit in the back and go. <laughs> I, I, I promise I'll finish with this story, okay? And then I'm going to tie it into my text a little bit. <laughs> 
But when we did that, when we did that youth center, there was there was some contention in the church business meeting at the time because some people felt instead of a youth center, we needed a bigger sanctuary, and we had a, quite a debate over that. And the vote was very narrow when we won to do the youth center, so we decided as a concession to people who also wanted a larger sanctuary, we'd knock the back wall out. There used to be a kitchen back there. We'd knock the back wall out and put another four, 30 to 50 seats, depending on how you set it up, an addition in the sanctuary and make the sanctuary bigger. And we decided we might as well recarpet the whole church at the same time so everything looked new. And uh, so to make a long story short, we ended up spending $50,000 more than we were supposed to. And uh, the week before we had the business meeting to share, when we had finished the building program, my board says to me, Pastor, you're going to have to go in front of the congregation and tell them why you spent $50,000 more than we were supposed to. I said, me? I'm going to tell them that how I spent $50,000 more, Kimo Sabi? We, we did this together? And uh, I went home that night, and as, as so often happened, I could tell you stories constantly. And so happens, the next night, I get a phone call. And it was from a lady in, in this area. She didn't say she lived in Virginia, but she did not come to this church. She told That's the first thing she told me. She said, is this Pastor Dennis? I said, yeah. She said, I do not attend your church. She said, but I'm in the, I live in the area. And she said, I am so excited. She said, Casey, your youth pastor, has been down here at the school ministering to the high school kids. He's on the streets talking to kids all the time. He said, I see you just built a youth center. And uh, he said, you're the only church in town that's reaching out to the young people around here. Mm-hmm. And she said, even though I don't attend your church, I'd like to send a gift to say thank you. And I thought, well, that was really sweet. And I'm thinking $100, maybe $1,000, you know. And so I said, thank you. That was kind of the end of the conversation. The next day I got a check from this lady for $50,000. Wow. Wow. And I called up the board and said, see? <laughs> But I want to tell you that that's because there were lots of people in this congregation that trusted God. It wasn't me, the leader, because I'm not perfect by any stretch, and many of you know that. But the one thing I'll say about this church is this was a family. And we had fun. Church was fun. And it was easy sell to the community to have people come here. You know, I used to get calls... uh, on New Year's Eve from people that didn't attend our church. I remember one call one year. We had crazy New Year's Eve parties. Many of you know oh, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a call one night around New Year's Eve, and these people said, hey, we live here in Virginia. So we usually go out drinking on New Year's Eve, but we're getting kind of tired. We're getting older. We have kids. We don't know how appropriate that is. We heard that your church is absolutely a blast. Can we come to your church's New Year's Eve party? Some of you are sitting here today because of that. And we always said yes. i never forget after one couple did that, they came. They, they stayed till 3 o'clock in the morning, which is when we usually got over. And they came down the hallway over here in the fellowship hall and stopped me and said, Pastor, thank you for letting us come. We never thought Christians could be this funny and have this much fun. Who has despised a day of small beginnings? When I first arrived in town, I had one minister in town rebuke me for coming here. He said, we got six churches in this small city. The last thing we need is a seventh church. And he said, I don't know what you think you're going to do here when all of our churches are 200 years or older and they all run 50 to 60. I said, well, if you guys, let's see, five, six churches running 
50 to 60, that's about 300 and something. I said, there's 2,500 people. He says, a lot of people yet that need to be in church. That's right. And he was very upset with me. And then we ended up growing into the largest church in the area. So God was so good. And he was so faithful. And that's what happened when Zerubbabel was the uh, province guy. Israel had been in captivity 70 years. Think of that, 70 years. By the way, if you, this is 40 years. Just think, this is how long Israel wandered in the wilderness. Put some perspective on that. That's what I thought of this morning. So now you get to go into the promised land with Pastor Mike. But you know, the 70 years that Israel was in captivity in Babylon, for 70 years they were, they were held there. The, the temple, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem had been laid waste. Finally, after 70 years, they were letting some of the people go back, and Zerubbabel was one of the leaders in the territory of Jerusalem. And the people came back, and they were mourning because there was no house of God. There was nothing left but rubble. And God spoke to Zerubbabel that said, I want you to build my temple again. And so he was gathering the capstone, the old capstone, which is the cornerstone of the original temple. He got that, and that was in the text. It mentioned that in the text, that when the people would see the capstone coming, they would say, God bless it, God bless it. And, uh, but he, he's got, instead of the people being excited about it, they started deriding Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel was building a smaller temple and not as grand as the Solomon temple was. And so some of the people were saying, this isn't great. This is not as beautiful as a temple we had. And that's where that text comes in, where Zerubbabel said, who has despised the day of small beginnings? The glory of the Lord is not dependent on the size of the temple. Amen. It's the size of our hearts. And is Virgins going to be on the national map as a megachurch? No. I doubt it. But you know something? There is no place I'd rather be this morning than here with God's people in this area because these are lives who have been changed by the glory of God. The 24 years Bevy Joe and I were here, of, of those 24 years that people sat under my ministry, 14 of you have gone into full-time ministry. I think that's pretty good fruit. I can still remember some of you the very day that you gave your heart to Jesus in our church services and saw your lives changed. Some of you are leaders today in this church who used to be quite the characters <laughs> in sin. And you know what? That's what it makes it worth it all. And nobody should ever despise a day of small beginnings. It's really funny, and I'm like, I honestly am going to quit. I didn't do too much expository preaching. I told mostly stories, but you need to hear those. Uh, when Israel crossed the Jordan River and went into the Promised Land, the first thing God told Joshua to do was build a memorial of stones. And he did that. He said, so when your children come by and say, what do these stones mean, you can tell them all the things God did. I really believe stories are important to communicate. And... Uh, so I wasn't quite preaching like I usually do, but you need to hear those stories because God has been a part of this congregation from day one. Amen. And none of the people, none of us eight adults that came up here were unique or special in any sort of make a big way. We were all just regular people that didn't know what we were doing half the time, but we loved people. We wanted to see God <coughs> do something. And look at all the fruit from it. There's a beautiful building worth over a million bucks sitting there. 
There's faces out here. Some of you have been in full-time ministry. Others of you, you've been like family to us. And we've seen the hand of God change your lives in dramatic ways as God has changed our lives in dramatic ways. When I Last week when I was in Houston, I was with all of the other 67 superintendents or 67 districts in the Assemblies of God. I am a rare superintendent because most of the superintendents of other districts pastored megachurches. And when they talked to me, I said, yeah, our church actually made it up to 300. They look at me. And you're a superintendent? <laughs> Praise God. But you know, the general superintendent a few years ago decided to do a blue ribbon uh, committee to examine everything about the Assemblies of God that needed uh, recommendations. And he called only four superintendents to be on that blue ribbon committee. And guess who one of them was? Yay! Hey. The influence of this place has gone a long ways, and it's because of all of you, and because of all of him, that there's nothing small about God. So no matter how small the congregation might be, since God can't be small, you can't be small. Right. And what he Amen. does is never small. That's Let's right. pray. Bow your heads. Every eye closed. You know, I don't know everybody here. There's some faces I don't recognize. I never close a service without giving somebody an opportunity to accept Jesus as their Savior. If you're here this morning, and you don't know that you've ever really accepted Christ into your heart and life, the best day of your life would be to start by saying, Jesus, come into my life. I guarantee you that God can do in your life what he's done in all of our lives and in the story of this church, if you'll trust him. God never leads anybody astray. He never will abandon anybody. You're not too small for Jesus. Jesus died for the small people. And so if you're here and you don't know that you've made a decision to ask Christ in your heart, but you can feel that tug right now where the Holy Spirit is saying, just say yes. God will never force himself on anybody, but he'll never reject anybody that says, come in. If that's you, I don't want anybody looking around because I want people to feel comfortable doing this. If that's you and you want to ask Jesus into your heart, will you just briefly slip your hand up, and when I see it, I'll say, I see that hand. You can put it right down again. But by doing that, you're saying, Pastor Dennis, I want to ask Jesus into my life. I don't, I don't know that I've ever made that decision, but I will make it today. Is there anybody here? Just slip your hand up briefly. Anybody? I was hoping there would be somebody. Anybody? All right, then I'm going to pray. Then I'm going to turn it over back to you, Pastor Mike. Father, I can't thank you enough for your hand at work in this church. And through all these great people who have become far more than just friends, they've become part of the family of God with us. And like brothers and sisters, we had our moments, uh, good ones and bad ones, but God, you always kept us together by your Spirit. You always worked in our lives. In spite of our shortcomings, you did big things. Mm -hmm. And God, you still will do big things. Lord, I pray for Pastor Mike and Lisa and the leadership team that's with them. May you continue to bring your blessing on this place and in this congregation as you have always done so in the past. You promised to be faithful to every generation, so I'm asking this next generation mm -hmm. that you will be faithful to them. And you promised you will, and you will, Lord. I may they tell their stories of God's faithfulness over the next 40 years. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the journey we've had together. And Lord, thank you for this place and this congregation. I give you thanks for it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.